Hello, and welcome to Dr. M's Women and Children First podcast. I'm your host, Dr. M, and this is a podcast about immunology today. My guest is Dr. Bob Roundtree, Robert Roundtree. He is a medical doctor who studied at the University of North Carolina School of Medicine in Chapel Hill, and then went on to Penn State University Medical Center to get his degree in family medicine. Over the years subsequently, he has pursued a career looking at the human immune health condition from a functional medicine perspective. He is an author of three books on integrative and functional medicine, one called Immunotics, A Revolutionary Way to Fight Infection, Beat Chronic Illness, and Stay Well. He's written a book called Smart Medicine for a Healthier Child, and a third book called A Parent's Guide to Medical Emergencies. I know Dr. Roundtree because he is an amazing teacher. He has lectured at the Institute for Functional Medicine conferences for years, and I found him to be one of the most engaging professors in the lecture hall, but also one of the most profoundly life-changing when you start to look at the deep science that he is proposing as it relates to immune health and in specifically for this podcast, autoimmunity, which unfortunately is getting worse and worse and worse worldwide and especially in the United States. So today we take a deep dive specifically into why is autoimmunity getting worse? What do we think the upstream reasons are that we're going down this pathway of more disease of attacking self? And then what are his thought processes around unwinding this problem? And based on all that information, we're trying to send out into the world a different way of trying to see disease prevention and not waiting until you have completely destroyed an organ and you need significant amounts of medicine. And I would use the example of type 1 diabetes. If we could get ahead of the disease, when we first found out that somebody had antibodies against their islet cells in their pancreas, could we change the outcome so that they don't end up having a completely dysfunctional pancreas needing IV or IM insulin for the remainder of someone's life? And the answer to that is yes, you can stop these diseases from progressing if you can figure out why the immune system is attacking self and unwind that process. And this is just like the work with Dr. Dale Bredesen and Alzheimer's. This is the way we should be now thinking about medicine. When we start to see the signs of inflammation, infection, and damage, we need to target that very quickly to help the march of autoimmune disease stop. So as that is the backdrop of the understanding of the why we are speaking with Dr. Bob Browntree, let me assure you that this is going to be a fun hour to listen to. He is amazing. Well, Bob, it's an absolute pleasure to have you here on the show today to share your wisdom. I still remember the day I first had the pleasure of sitting in the back of the room, listening to you wax eloquently and say, all right, class, here we go. You know, all the great statements and your, your extemporaneous thoughts, but here we are today. I'm so excited to have you share your wisdom around autoimmunity. So welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. Let's let's get started. So for me, I thought, you know, one of the things I wanted to throw out here was just a statement by Polly Matzinger, just to kick this off. Um, Polly Matzinger, who is an amazing 
physician at the Ghost Lab in at the National Institute of Allergy and in, in Infectious Disease in Bethesda, wrote in the Frontiers in Immunology article, autoimmune, autoimmunity, are we asking the right question? And Polly said, for decades, the main question immunologists have asked about autoimmunity is what causes a break in self-tolerance? We have not found good answers to that question, and I believe we are still so ignorant because it's the wrong question. Rather than a break in self-tolerance, I suggest that many autoimmune diseases might be due to defects in normal tissue physiology. So with that is sort of a backdrop of where we're going. I got to say something about Polly, though. Yeah, go for it. You know her background? She was a Playboy bunny. No shit. She was like working in a restaurant, you know, a play like a Playboy club. And apparent the at least this is the story. It could be total mythology, but apparently uh, some immunologists were having a discussion, and she overheard the discussion and broke in with a question, just like the kind of question that you just asked. No way! That's right. an amazing story. Very intelligent question, and they went, "Who the heck are you?" And uh, you know what? You should be doing research. And so she went off and got her PhD. And the next thing you know, she had her lab. Uh, at NIH, I believe, yeah, right, doing research. And the reason that's relevant to this discussion is because she thinks outside of the box. Right. Right. From right. day one, she thinks outside of the box. Totally. And that's the whole point of this podcast. We need to get outside of the box to go upstream to understand why women and children primarily, and then therefore down the road, eventually as adults, we are having issues around self-attack, whether it's autoimmunity, allergy, atopic diseases, all of the above. So I'm going to turn you loose. I don't want to talk a lot. I want to hear you so the world can understand how brilliant you are. Let's start with the breakdown of what is the state of autoimmunity in the United States? Okay. Well, first I want to answer your question about Paul, you know, what Polly raised, and then we'll, we'll dive into that because it's all kind right. of, it segues. So, you know, before uh, Polly Matzinger came along, the whole notion of autoimmunity. Well, even further back, we had Paul Ehrlich, who was the father of modern immunology, who said that autoimmune disease doesn't exist. Right. Right. He said it's incompatible with life. He called it horror autotoxicus. Doesn't exist because he said, gee, if someone's immune system attacked their body, they would die. Right. So it just can't exist. And as often happens in medicine, and you know this very well, and I know this very well, you get some head honcho that says, here's the way it is. And everyone goes, oh, yes, sir. Yes. You know, sire, deemed authority. If you say so, it must be true. So right. people never challenge it, even though they would say, well, what are these autoantibodies you get with, say, autoimmune hemolytic anemia? What is that? Oh, right. well, I don't know. That's an anomaly. You know, so it's, it's the that whole thing of the uh, the black duck hypothesis. If you say all ducks are are yellow and you have one black duck, then you go, well, either I don't see that black duck, or you know, it's not a duck, it's a swan or something else. So that was where we started, right? And then the next phase of it was to finally acknowledge autoimmunity does exist. People do have it, and hey, it's actually pretty common. Well, why does it happen? It happens because the immune system makes a mistake. Something breaks tolerance. So tolerance is, quote, the norm, and the immune system somehow gets confused and confuses self versus non-self. And so the whole discussion was about self versus non-self. 
right. immune system is going, well, that self, it's fine. That's just synovium of your joint. Or that's, you know, the the glomerulus, right, in the kidney. That's yours. That's self. But, hey, this bacteria, that's non-self. So the immune system makes a mistake and goes, well, that glomerulus looks a little bit like streptococcal bacteria. And then you get post-streptococcal glomerulonephritis, right? right? So that was a nice, neat theory. But then Matziger came along and said, no, I think the immune system is not that concerned with non-self, right? Tolerance is part of it, but that's not the whole story. The immune system is concerned with, quote, entities that do danger. Right. Right. So what does that mean? That means you've got to have tissue destruction. So it's not just getting an infection. It's not just being exposed to a toxin. It's not just being exposed to cigarette smoke. And then that's the end of the story. What does the smoke do? Right. It damages tissue and the damaged tissue creates molecules that send alarm signals to the immune system. And that's what causes it to react. So it's stranger plus danger. Right. 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 So it's right. the dangerous stranger model that Matzinger really brought to the forefront. Brilliant thinking. And of course, there was a lot of pushback. There's still some pushback. Uh, but right. I think it's pretty straightforward. And now we, we've identified a lot of these danger molecules, and one of them is uric acid, right? right? If you got a lot of uric acid around, it forms crystals, and crystals are uh, activating uh, of a whole cascade of inflammatory responses in the body. So you get those crystals, you get an activated immune system, and that can cause an acute gouty attack. So that kind of segues into your question, which is, what's the state of autoimmunity uh, in this country and in the world? Well, I would just cite an article that recently appeared, and I, I can't quote the the exact name of the journal, but it's something like the Journal of Experimental Arthritis and Rheumatism. Um, it was a study published out of China where they looked at data, global trends and disease, and they came to the conclusion that rheumatoid arthritis is increasing. <laughs> around the world. It's increasing. And that kind of grafted onto an article that was in the New England Journal not that long ago, I don't know, maybe 15 years ago, that looked at global incidence of multiple sclerosis, inflammatory bowel disease, type 1 diabetes, and said, wow, look, all these autoimmune diseases or what we think of as an autoimmune disease, they're all increasing. Right. And and the reason I'm kind of citing this data uh, is because we don't really have a registry. You know, when when the COVID pandemic started getting big, we had a registry. We could say there are X number of cases in every state or in every county. So we were tracking it. Well, how many cases of autoimmune thyroiditis are there in your county? How many cases are there in Salisbury, North Carolina? Right. Do you know? No, no idea, right? So no. the only way they can tell that it's going on is by, the only way the authorities can tell is by looking at how many prescriptions are being written for thyroid replacement. Right. And, tra and track back from that and go, well, there must be a lot of autoimmune thyroiditis. So a lot of it is is kind of guesswork because there's no obligation for rheumatologists or primary care docs or pediatricians to report these diseases when they see them. But there are ways to kind of get at that data. And all the data is saying, well, rheumatoid arthritis is going up. Juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, JRA, is going up. 
Well, wait a minute. It, we went from a scenario where it didn't exist, according to Dr. Ehrlich, to it's increasing. Is that because there are more bad genes? No. No. I mean, how, how would that be possible? Right. Too right? fast. Uh, is it more bad genes? Maybe, like, this is the same discussion that we've had with autism. Maybe we're better at diagnosing it. No. Well, I don't think we were bad at diagnosing autism, right? If you've got a autistic kid, you know, there, there's really no question about it. You know, over time, maybe with one visit and, and a kid is on the spectrum and not so bad, you can say, well, it could be other things. But over time, it declares itself. I don't think we just got a heck of a lot better at diagnosing it. I no, don't I think could... we got a heck of a lot better diagnosing JRA. Yeah, I wouldn't give 100% sure that we are not better at diagnosing autism to the point of the volume we're seeing, 100%. Yeah, yeah. So it's clearly something that's exploding, all these diseases. And and as I mentioned before this discussion, talking to Elisa Song, uh, your your fellow pediatrician out in California, saying we're really at, we're at the beginning of an explosion in autoimmune disease. So what is the state of autoimmunity? It's I think it's exploding. I think it's really taking off in a major way. Right. And I think to our point offline, we talked about a little bit of what we're seeing in practice. I was here 24 years now, one in 150 kids roughly is my guess. What we're seeing, uh, milk protein tolerance requiring a transfer of, of formula to alimentum, a hydrolyzed formula. Now it's one in four, maybe even one in three at this point. The volume of prescription I'm writing is maddening. So that is a precursor to all of these events long-term if uncontrolled. And my biggest frustration, the beauty of now life is we have a clinical intelligence engine tied to our practice where we're now doing predictive data dives through the computer. And we're now starting to look at a, a predictive model of finding kids who had a history of milk protein tolerance by a couple codes, K52.22 and another one. And then do they have a six month rolling average of antibiotic prescriptions? And if we find that they've been on a couple antibiotics, we go back and look, oh, you've been tied. The computer spits out a list of names. We call them and say, are you back on dairy? And mm. invariably the answer is yes. You pull the dairy back out and oh, by the way, they stop having ear infections. It's, it's that simple, but the problem, Bob, and this is where we're going next. This shouldn't be in a society that has as much money as we have, that we're capable of having high quality, everything, nourishment, supplements, the whole nine yards, yet we're going the exact opposite direction to your point. We're on the tip of a spear of an epidemic of autoimmunity in adults following these children. So why are we seeing this? What has happened in the last thousand years to cause humans to hate you know, their own tissue? Right. And as he states, autotoxic, you know, auto horror toxicus, whatever it was, a horror autotoxicus or autotoxicus, horror autotoxicus. We have, you know, and, and to your point, the immune system doesn't make mistakes in general. The immune system is there doing a job. It is surveilling for trouble pathogens. And in this case, it's surveilling for danger signals, whether it's DNA spilled out of a cell, RNA spilled out of a cell, uric acid, ATP, uh, even, you know, lipopolysaccharide or these bacterial cell wall debris from the gut that happen to translocate into the bloodstream. There's all these mechanisms in place. Mitochondria, to protect fragments of mitochondria, which go yes. up whenever you're in a stressful situation. Correct. And so the immune system <laughs> knew for a thousand years or more, a million years, frankly, to handle these things appropriately, turn on the immune system, kill whatever was there and start all over again by reproducing or refixing the tissue that was there. What has gone wrong? Let's go back in time to wherever you want to start. What did we do 
to the human condition that has allowed us to start seeing ourselves this way? Well, I think uh, one of the best pieces of data we have is uh, from some gut microbiome analysis that was done on a, a tribe in, uh, I believe it was in Venezuela, way up in the jungles. Yep. Um, and, you know, I joke about this, that um, there's a flyover one day and they see some huts in an area and they go, uh, this is an uncontacted tribe. We didn't know there was a tribe there. So yep. let's fly in and meet these people. And of course, these are people <laughs> that didn't know that airplanes existed or helicopters existed. Suddenly they swoop out of the sky and what do they say? You know, we want to bend over. We want to sample your gut microbiome. I mean, they think, okay, our first encounter with the outside world, you imagine Star Trek, right? You know, the prime, you've violated the prime directive. You show up out of nowhere and you want to do gut samples. And these people must be thinking, I don't know if we want anything to do with the outside world, right? Because they're <laughs> very strange out there. Yeah. Right, but they they do gut microbiome sampling, take the samples back, analyze them, et cetera. But they also check these people for indicators of inflammatory bowel disease, heart disease, you know, any kind of chronic disease you can think of. And what do they find? First of all, their gut microbiome is just teeming with things that we would consider to be harmful. All kinds of parasites and spirochetes and, you know, bad, what we would consider to be bad bacteria. And yet, at the same time, they don't have any evidence of heart disease, even the people who are older who should be coming into that uh, high-risk group. They don't have signs of autoimmune disease, right? So right. that ties right. into a book that you know of, I'm sure, called The Missing Microbes. Right. And the, the argument, uh, it's Dr. Blazer. I don't remember his first name. Is it Martin Mark? Blazer. Martin Blazer, yeah, who's... Uh, uh, emeritus professor of medicine, uh, still writing about this stuff. And he says, boy, you know, almost ever since the discovery of antibiotics or before that, with the the advent of being super hygienic, we've lost significant amounts of microbes in our gut. Every right. generation, every generation. And so you have a baby that's born by cesarean section. Um, they're missing the benefit of all those bacteria in the mother's vaginal um, microbiome. Right. Right. So generation after generation, we've gone from what you saw in the Venezuelan tribes of, of really having tens of thousands of different kinds of microbes in the gut to a typical person having a thousand or less species in their gut. So we have a a less than a tenth of what we used to have in our gut. And what are all those microbes do? Well, in the first year of life in particular, they program the immune system. And they so they send messages to the immune cells that line the gut. And as you know, it's the, the number that's often quoted is about 80% of our immune cells at some point are interacting with the gut wall. Yeah. Right. Yep. It's I don't know if it's exactly 80 percent. That's a number you see all the time. It's a lot. Right. It's more than half your immune cells are lining the gut, which makes sense because, you know, in the course of your life, you're going to eat how many tons of food? Literally yep. tons of food are going to be going through. So you've got these immune cells that are sampling everything that's going through. Right. So in the mm -hmm. first year of life, those sampling cells are sampling all these microbes that are gonna be in a quote healthy gut and they're gonna go, well, that's all right. Hey, you're cool, you're fine. 
oh, you're spirochete, you're fine. You're not doing any damage right now. You're not doing any damage right now. (laughs) So couple that, you know, exposure that we've had for thousands and thousands of years to the use of antibiotics. Yeah. You know, now we're in a scenario where we should be screening all pregnant women for strep, right? Doing vaginal swabs and seeing if they have strep. And if you have strep, you should get antibiotics before you've delivered your baby because the baby may be born with a strep infection. Right. So to prevent those rare cases of sepsis in a baby, we should just give all pregnant women antibiotics. Yeah. Right. Mess with the microbiome. Let's start messing with the microbiome before birth. Yep. Right. So couple that with cesarean sections and, you know, you're already set up at birth. And then, you know, to top that off, the way I was trained in pediatrics is you have a kid who's crying and has a little bit of a fever and maybe tugging at their ear. Well, antibiotics. Right. Yep. That I yep. mean, and, you know, you take your otoscope, take a look in the uh, the external auditory canal. If you've got a bulging eardrum in there, that buys you ten days of antibiotics. <laughs> <laughs> right. No, never mind the fact that if you just left it alone, or maybe put a little mullen olive oil in there and waited a day, ninety percent of the time, that kid's going to be fine. Right. That's still the case, right? We've had, you know, studies going back for decades saying you don't need to do this, and yet it's still happening. Am I correct? You are correct. That's still on, how on the a, training goes. On a level beyond what we should be accepting, especially over the age of two. The data is quite clear of the age of two that 80% of these ear infections clear within 24 hours if you just leave them alone. And so at at worst, providers should be saying, let's hold the antibiotic for 24 to 48 hours. And then if they're not better, then recheck and then consider putting the antibiotic in if it's not clearing to prevent those infections that then do go sideways. But to your point, most of it can go away on its own. So now we're just adding up the factors, C-sections, antibiotics to the pregnant woman before birth, uh, which is happening increasingly. Uh, And and the doc, even docs who are holistically minded are under a lot of pressure to do it that way. Right. Well, if you're it, working in the mainstream system, you're working for a, a big hospital and you didn't give that woman antibiotics, you could lose your privileges at the hospital. You know, so there's all this pressure to keep doing it, even though when you pull back and look at the big picture, you say, wait a minute, this is creating more problems than it's solving. Right. And if you think about uh, the Yanomami tribe, which is the one you're talking about in Venezuela, that's Maria Dominguez Bello's yeah. work with Martin Blazer. Well, right. And that's she, her. Was her husband? The, I don't think they're I, again, I, related. I, they, they, they work together on the yeah. invisible, in, in, invisible. They have a project called the invisible. I cannot remember. It's invisible something. But they've done this work together. And she is the massive proponent right now of vaginal recolonization post c-section which mind-blowingly i was at a conference teaching in february and i presented this data and an obstetrician in the room stood up and said that this was risky yeah and i said well wait a second vaginal microbiome that's full of dangerous microbes right well but one (laughs) one million years of vaginal deliveries in forests and you know, what, whoa, whoa, time out, what's going on? You know, so yeah. I was like, well, if we know somebody's got herpes active and we know they have groupie strep, then we just don't swab those kids. You're not going to do like, that. 
be a prudent clinician. And it was like, no, we're throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And I was like, oh my gosh. But to your point, I think this is the 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 missing microbes theory is is absolutely legit. And and William Parker, I think, is another one who has been studying this with the macrobes, the parasites that are missing. And, uh, and, you know, Sidney Baker, who, you know, you know, very well has been talking about this for a long, long time. So I think we're, 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 we're really doing damage to our ecosystem. Holda Clark. I don't know if you remember that. She wrote all these books on parasites and disease and saying, Oh, if you only got rid of parasites, then cancer would go away. Autoimmune disease would go away. It's exactly the opposite. It's I've, I've actually, Give and so yeah, I'm admitting it in public. I have prescribed uh, <laughs> certain kinds of worms, helminths, to people with inflammatory bowel disease, and I've seen it work. Yeah, yeah I think it's yeah. uh, Joel Weinstock was doing a lot of this research, and uh, exactly. and Yehudi Schoenfeld, who's a world expert on autoimmunity, is saying we can learn a lot from worms, and why? Because the worms actually secrete substances, glycoproteins. Right. that interact with those immune cells that line the gut and tell them to be tolerant. Right. Right. So there's, you know, there's some advantage to having these worms and, you know, growing up in the South, you know, I, I saw a lot of women with, with hookworm. Yep. Right. You go around barefoot, you, you know, you, you get in mud puddles and there was, I remember growing up being told, Oh, be careful when you go barefoot because you might get hookworm. Well, the downside of hookworm is you can be chronically anemic. Yep. But but the upside to hookworm is that it may actually prevent autoimmune disease. Well, it's sort of that brings up a fascinating conversation about the Tsamane Indians, uh, the tribe in South America as well, that they looked at for cardiovascular disease and found little to no cardiovascular disease dis- despite having a high sensitivity C-reactive protein of 3.5, which in yeah. modern which in modern terms means you're at risk for cardiovascular disease. And when yep. they went and looked at their body, their bloodstream was perfectly healthy. The inflammation was perfectly due to treat the body's natural tendency to fight parasites and infections that they were surrounded by, but they had zero signs of auto-inflammatory, autoimmune or, or uh, atopic diseases. Yeah. So yet again, speaking to the reality of what humans have been doing for millennia until the recent past. Yeah. So that's all. We're all just talking up the hygiene hypothesis, you know, which is yeah. a, I believe it was David Strawn, who was an allergist uh, in England basically said, hey, isn't this weird? Kids that grow up on farms have fewer allergies. Right. And uh, hey, kids that have multiple siblings who are presumably messy and handling the baby, et cetera, those kids have fewer allergies. So it started with the whole allergy thing. And then there was a realization that autoimmunity actually was lower in these kids as well. So yeah. there's the micro part, which I think is really critical. There's the toxin part, which is much more complicated. Yeah. Uh, but uh, and the data is a little bit more inferential um, than it is direct. But I still think it's very compelling data. And so you have to start there with the the well documented association between cigarette smoke and rheumatoid arthritis. Okay, let's talk about that. Yeah, so for years, uh, we've been told that rheumatoid arthritis started in the gut. And by, you know, we've been told by the complementary community, that's all a gut problem, it's a diet problem. Well, yeah, that's true. 
But epidemiologically speaking, the most compelling data is the link between smoke and RA. It's the number one risk factor for smoking. And the more heavily a person smokes, the greater the risk for RA. So then you have to say, well, wait a minute, that's a lot. What does the lungs have to do with the joints? <laughs> yep. You know? What's the connection? What's the connection here? And then that kind of takes you to the next level of saying, well, maybe there's more going on in the gut, in the in the lung, blood, air interface, right? Than we ever realized. We talked about the gut microbiome, eighty percent of the of the immune system lines the gut. So yeah, that all makes sense, but we've ignored the lungs. We've ignored the lungs. So there, there actually turns out to be a lot of interaction uh, between the immune system and the lungs and what we're being exposed to. We're breathing in microbes all the time. Right? Right. But we're also breathing in toxins all the time. Here in the West, the biggest problem we have is wildfires. Yep. You know, like, I mean, this summer, the Canadian wildfires were just, terrible we had days where you couldn't hardly see across the street here in colorado um so yeah we have to take that in consideration because if cigarette smoke is a problem what about other air pollutants yeah well then you drill down and go well what is this okay big picture there's more of the immune system lining the lungs and we realize that there's a similar phenomenon to what's going on in the gut than we had realized before we got to take this into consideration. Well, what is the main screening test that's used for rheumatoid arthritis? It's the anti-citric citrullinated protein. And I remember when that first came up at a conference, well, you should be measuring anti-CCP. Go, cool. What is it? <laughs> well, that's not how we're taught in medicine. In medicine, we're no. taught. You measure, you do this test, and if it's positive, then you give the person methotrexate. And that's what else do you need to know? Well, I want to know where the hell did this test come from? Pardon my English. Yeah. Like, who thought of this? Yeah. You know, and all the tests that we use, you can kind of go back and say, well, where did this come from? We do the C-reactive protein. That came from realization that that protein went way up in the bloodstream of people with pneumococcal pneumonia. There must be something going on. And then over time, we started studying it. Similarly, right. the erythrocyte sedimentation rate. Right. That, that was one of the earliest markers that somebody was sick. It was called a sickness marker. And they didn't know what it was. They just knew if you put your blood in the tube, you could watch it settle more quickly. Yep. So you can trace these things back with the CCP. I want, I want to trace this back. Where did it come from? And nobody could tell me. It was astounding. I really had to spend a lot of time digging in the literature because I thought, well, isn't this a clue to the pathogenesis of this disease? And it absolutely is a clue to the pathogenesis of the disease. So here's what they think is going on, is that smoke generates oxidative stress, right? More free radicals on the surface of the lungs and the mucosa. And that activates an enzyme called the PAD enzyme, right? And the PAD enzyme actually swaps out a, a healthy amino acid, arginine, for another healthy amino acid, citrulline. And it does it on not just one protein, but on a lot of proteins. And that's the key, because when you hear anti-CCP, you think it's one thing. 
but right. it's actually a whole family of proteins that have this arginine sticking out. Right. And this is a this is a normal enzyme doing normal things, being turned on by potentially cadmium or some other toxin in the cigarettes. Yep. yep. Then switches a an amino acid in a sequence of a protein in a chondrocyte or some some part of the joint space. Well, it starts out in the lungs. The the, right. the swap occurs in the lungs. That's okay. at least the theory. Right. And the reason that this is really critical is because it changes the shape and the electromagnetic properties of the protein. So it's not that citrulline is bad. Citrulline is great stuff. It's in watermelon juice, right? I right. recommend it for cardiovascular problems all the time. And people ask me, oh, well, isn't citrulline bad? Because anti-citrullinated protein, doesn't that mean it's a citrulline problem? It's nothing to do with citrulline. It's the fact that that protein that's lining the membrane of the lung, that protein has normally got an arginine sitting there and the immune cells are used to that shape and that electromagnetic property, got right? It. And so when you put a citrulline in there, suddenly it's what I call a freak molecule. Mm -hmm. It's a freaky molecule and the immune system goes, wait a minute, that doesn't, that doesn't look right. That's a stranger right? The, you know, back to Matzinger, that's a stranger. But not only that, if the cigarette smoke is damaging tissue and you're releasing, you know, fragments of mitochondria, internal cellular material, et cetera, the immune cells are going to go, wait a minute, freak molecule and danger molecules, stranger mm -hmm. plus danger. And that's going to activate the immune system. And then the immune cells go, where else might we find these freak proteins. Oh, look, here's something in the synovium that looks really similar. So that's called epitope spreading in the immunology world, right? Is that, right. you know, at first the immune system attacks that cell with the citrulline on it, and then it starts looking at everything else around it and going, well, maybe these guys are bad, and maybe these guys are bad. And so it just spreads and spreads and spreads. And that's what happens in the joint as well. The reason this is important is because it, it's probably not just applicable to rheumatoid arthritis. Right. Right. It It's a similar phenomenon to what's happening in multiple sclerosis, right? You find these citrullinated uh, antigens, you know, and antibodies against these citrullinated antigens. You start finding them in all kinds of autoimmune diseases. So that's not to say that it's cigarette smoke or cadmium that's causing all these autoimmune diseases, it's saying, here's a principle. Here's the principle. And wow, if that principle is true, it's not just cigarette smoke, it's wildfire smoke. It's air pollution. Right. And sure enough, people that live closer to highways have more autoimmune disease. You know, people that live in heavily polluted areas, heavily polluted cities have more autoimmune disease, not just rheumatoid arthritis. So suddenly this whole door opens up where you're going with autoimmune disease not only exists, we know that it exists, but it's probably happening all the time and it's happening as a result of a lack of good programming by microbes, but also what we call aberrant signaling from all these dangerous molecules that are being introduced in our toxic environment. Now, right. can we trace all this back in any one individual? It's really hard. 
right? By the time somebody develops a condition, you know, if you've got a kid with, with juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, can you say, oh, um, that kid grew up in an environment where both parents smoked or grew up, you know, near a highway or something like that? Sometimes you can if you do a good environmental history. Sometimes it's really, you know, a nice, neat package. But a lot of times all you can say is this is the world we live in. Right. And, it's, you know, Phil Collins said, and these are the hands we're given. Right. Yeah. <laughs> this is the world we live in. Um, you know, this is what we do. But then you go, well, can you do something about that? Is it is it is the march inevitable? Now, for some people with certain kinds of genes, uh, you know, their their immune system is just set up. Right. We can breed laboratory animals, mice and rats, whose immune systems are ready to blow. Right. Right. So you blow a little puff of smoke on those rats and they just go crazy. You give those cats, oh, those, those rats, you give them COVID or you give them EBV and their immune system just goes crazy. Right. Those people are just real set. You know, they're the real canaries in the coal mine. Right. And I see patients like that where you, I just, and I tell them your immune system is like the guy that walks in the bar and the first person he sees, he says, I don't like you. Yeah. You know, <laughs> let's step outside. I'm ready to fight. <laughs> Cause their immune system is making inflammatory cytokines, right? These, you know, little soluble, small proteins that, communicate messages between immune cells that say, hey, something's up. And that happens before you start making the anti-CCP or the anti-nuclear antibody. Right. That happens even earlier. So some people are just a setup. Those people are harder to treat. And sometimes they really need the full court press. Right. So I'm, I'm not denying the value of the rheumatology consultation. <laughs> right. Right. With some folks, you just go, OK, I think, you know, we need to do something more aggressive here. But I think the vast majority of people are in a scenario where they're almost on the verge of getting an autoimmune disease all the time. And we see that in people that say get a viral infection, they get a gastroenteritis and suddenly their joints ache. Yep. Right. They start getting swollen joints or they get a rash or something like that. And, and you think, well, that's weird. It looks like an autoimmune disease. Some people got a bladder infection and the same thing happens. Well, the, Dr. Ebringer at King's College in London says rheumatoid arthritis is caused by proteus bacteria, right? That it's hiding up in the, in the urinary system and doesn't necessarily cause symptoms. Well, I think what he's saying is proteus is a trigger. And if somebody's immune system is already set up because they're living in this toxic environment, uh, you know, they already have the antecedent to the condition, then that's a bit of a setup. So they get the, the urinary tract infection and it pushes them over the brink. I think the same thing is true with COVID. There's no question that some people get COVID and then they develop certain kinds of autoimmunity. It's been well documented that people start making antibodies against all kinds of tissue, the gut, yeah, the yeah. heart, the brain, they start making weird autoantibodies. 
are those autoantibodies transient or not? That I mean, that's kind of the question. And and the bigger question is, is autoimmune disease inevitable? And I don't hmm. believe that for one minute, right? A number of years ago, I had a mom come to see me who um, had a, a child who had type 1 diabetes. And so child number two comes along and she says, well, he's now in a study at the University of Colorado where they're looking at autoantibodies. They're looking at development of anti-islet cell, anti-insulin antibodies, anti-GAD antibodies. And we know that those autoantibodies will appear, what, a year, two years before you develop type 1 diabetes? And that this gets back to what you were saying about milk proteins, right? So I think the standard approach would be to say, oh, look, you're getting autoantibodies. Let's just put you on prednisone. Let's see what that, you know, it's a, it's a very conventional way of thinking that's being applied to, I think, a brilliant model, which says these autoantibodies can appear a long time before the disease. And if that's the case, that means there's room for intervention. But you and I, when we think about intervention, we would think clean up the environment, right? We would think, take a look at food like gluten and dairy. And let's, let's, you know, let's exert pressure where it's easy. Uh, Let's not be giving this kid unnecessary antibiotics. Let's maybe give this kid a probiotic. Although, you know, that's a little controversial. We don't know which one would be the best, but there are some studies on probiotics, as you know. Uh, I think Culturel in particular has got some pretty good data on warding off allergies when given to pregnant women or, or babies. So, you know, there there is some data out there from probiotics, but it's all about saying, hey, autoimmune diseases, uh, they have a long germination period. Now, that may not seem like the case if a person gets COVID and then boom, they develop uh, autoimmune kidney disease. Right. Right. Or, or even in the case of a person that gets vaccination and says, hey, I was perfectly fine you know, and then I got myasthenics right after the shot. Well, was it the shot uh, or was it, did the shot kind of hurry along a process that was already underway? Right. Or did getting COVID hurry along a process that was, was tolerance to, to Matzinger's point, was tolerance already broken somewhat and the immune system was just waiting for an accident to happen, waiting for the danger signal. Yeah. Well, and I and I think of it, Bob, from that perspective, you know, even taking it to another level, the metabolic nature of a human, right? So if you look at our modern society, you know, and you, and I've heard you say many times the whole sticky bun reality, but if you look at the quintessential dysfunctional metabolic state, it's diabetes. And yes. what does all diabetics struggle with? They struggle with immune activity. Primarily, yes. primarily viral and bacterial immune surveillance in in the front end, and then the ability to kill the process 
as time goes on, a diabetic will take twice to three times as long to deal with any kind of infection and they get it more often. So therefore, to your point, they're developing more danger signals. So it's no surprise at all that diabetics have a significant higher risk of autoimmunity. And in the autism world, a mother with diabetes has a twofold increased risk of a child with autism. And oh, by the way, if she's obese as well, it's a 4X increase. So there's something going on in that side of the immune polarity that Sam Yannick speaks to all the time for the function immunology side of the coin that not only are we setting ourselves up on the front end, as you've spoken eloquently to the microbiome, the macrobiome, the pollution side, but now speak to the sticky bun theory. Like what's going on here? All right. So, you know, one thing I got to point out is that listeners, if they've never heard any of this before, they might go, Oh my God. Okay. You were starting out with the basic thing I could understand and missing microbes, right? <laughs> now you've added smoke, then you added toxins, then you expanded that. And now you're talking about diabetes. Oh my God. Like, how do I think that way? Well, it takes a while for the brain to grasp systems thinking. Right. And I, I think that's the whole problem with our medical education system is we don't teach systems biology. Yep. But the kind of stuff we're talking about is, is a system right? You've got this factor, this factor, and this factor. And when you put them together, that's a constellation, right? And it's the constellation that creates the problem. It's a really important way of thinking. It's really important concept because the body is a system. The body is not just one organ. The body is not just the liver, right? The body is not just the gut. The, The body is a beautiful and highly complex organism where there's a lot of interactions going on. Right. So I I just wanted to point that out for people that are saying, my head is hurting now, hearing about, like, I thought you were going to explain the simple reason for autoimmune disease. Well, we, it is a simple reason, but it's a reason that involves holding several factors in place all at once. Yeah. And that just involves a different way of thinking, right? It's a a connected web. Yeah. It's a connectome. Yeah. So your your brain, you just let need to let your brain wrap around that in the same way that how do you wrap around the fact that that ants can build these anthills, right, without really having a brain and they build these beautiful structures like how does that kind of herd uh, behavior, how does that emerge? How is it that fish can swim in a ball and protect themselves from attack by sharks? Right. And move in this elegant pattern without hitting each other. Mm -hmm. Right. So we have this built in capability to like function in this swarm model of emergent behavior. So I just wanted to throw that out because then you throw in this whole thing about metabolic endotoxemia. Like, oh, my God, what are you talking about? Well, there was an elegant study that was done, what, 10, 15 years ago where they had people go to uh, a McDonald's uh, and eat a a typical breakfast. I think it was like hash browns and sausage, et cetera. And they measured a transcription factor called NF-kappa B, which is one of the final common pathways for activation of inflammation in the body. And they found out, lo and behold, when people ate the Happy Meal, that their NF-kappa B levels went way up. And the clincher was they stayed up for several hours and the authors hypothesized that that's about when people would eat that second meal. Yep. So the NF-kappa B would go up and then it would stay up. Right. Well, 
what's going on? Several things could be going on, but one of the things that's going on is that those foods create leaky gut. And I still have mainstream colleagues, gastroenterologists say leaky gut is nonsense. And the ones that say that, I go, Are you have you heard of a library? And they go, actually, I haven't heard of a library. Well, have you heard of the internet or PubMed? Because if you think leaky gut is crazy nonsense, that's because you haven't read an article in the, the mainstream medical literature for the last 15 years. Yeah. Because there's articles on leaky gut every day in mainstream gastroenterology journals, right? So it's not just this weirdo Dr. Alessio Fasano at Harvard that's saying this, you know, this is really mainstream. Um, and it's not unusual for practicing doctors to be about 15 years behind the literature. So I don't hold it against them. I just say, it's time for you to catch up on the literature, sir. Yeah. And then, you know, so the literature clearly shows that certain things can induce leaky gut. And all that means is that the normal channels between the cells lining the gut are not being as tightly regulated as they should be. And so that's allowing fragments of foods tiny microscopic fragments of foods or fragments of certain bacteria, especially what's called gram-negative bacteria, to leak into the bloodstream. And if those things leak into the bloodstream and go into the circulation, the immune system sees that and goes, danger, stranger, danger, stranger, danger. So that's just adding to the same model that we're talking about. It's maybe not enough to cause sepsis, which is why they call it you know, a, a metabolic endotoxemia. So sepsis is full-blown endotoxemia, right? Right. That will kill a person. But what happens if you've got a small amount of endotoxemia? Well, it's just enough to activate the immune system, just enough to cause uh, mild elevations in C-reactive protein, right? So you, you can detect that this is going on. You can't measure NF-kappa-B commercially, now that's something you have to do in the lab, but you can see other indicators of it. And C-reactive protein is probably the best, or at least the highly sensitive CRP. That tells you the immune system is activated. So what if a person's got metabolic endotoxemia? And then they get an infection with Epstein-Barr, right? They get infectious mononucleosis. Or they get COVID. And we know one of the biggest risk factors for getting full-blown symptoms of COVID-19 is to be diabetic or to be obese. So, well, that makes perfect sense in this model because the model says the immune system is already inflamed. It's already overactivated. And all it takes is this one more trigger to push them over the top. Right. So again, the argument that I'm making is that infection was just a trigger that made something happen that was already in the process of happening. Uh, and I would agree. And I think the work of John Castelline with HDL is coming to play now, too, because you look at COVID, four main diseases drove 98% of the deaths, regardless of all other genetics involved, heart disease, diabetes, obesity, and, and high blood pressure. Well, interesting enough, in the world of HDL biology, used to be called good cholesterol, no such thing anymore. We know these are all silly monikers, but HDL is involved in clearing metabolic endotoxemia. So if you have yeah. lipopolysaccharide, in the serum of the blood, like you said, in sepsis, 
this is a big nightmare. So HDL and LDL, these lipotransfer proteins that carry cholesterol around the body are there to clear out these gram negative rod debris. And in somebody who's had meningococcemia, that HDL will be zero at death because they've used it all and brought it all to the liver. And so I think this is all coming together again, to your point, systems biology, like all these folks that have cardiovascular risk factors, it's being driven by leaky gut, endotoxemia, all being driven by sticky buns, bad diet, toxin exposure. And so when we all drill it back down to the basics, it's going back to the beginning of what you said. It starts at the birth and we just continue in this soup of dysfunction that drives whatever disease your genetics allow you to have. Yep. And, and again, the question is, once it happens, is the person stuck? And the, you know, the analogy I often use is um, person gets uh, symmetrical, swollen, painful joints. And you do a bunch of tests and they're negative. Uh, or the rheumatologist, or you send them to a rheumatologist. Rheumatologist tests for rheumatoid arthritis or anti-CCP and says they're negative. And the person says, well, then what do I have? Well, you have arthritis. But, you know, that it's just a descriptive term. It doesn't say anything. You have arthritis. And they go, well, that's it. Yeah, well, you can take some, you know, ibuprofen or naproxen. And they go, but is there no name for what I have? And they go, yeah, you don't. Well, I can't say you got rheumatoid arthritis. I'll call it undifferentiated rheumatoid arthritis. Oh, right? my favorite, my favorite in med school, idiopathic. Idiopathic <laughs> Which... arthritis, seronegative. So you have arthritis, except you didn't meet the criteria. So what they're saying is you're trying out for the team and you didn't make the cut, right? Why don't you come back next year? We'll see if you make the cut, right? We'll mm -hmm. come back next year. We'll test you for RA. You make the cut, then we can give you methotrexate. Yep. Yeah. Right. So, but then what I don't tell you is once you make the cut and you get on the team, the jersey is welded to your back for life. Mm -hmm. So it's like, whoa, I'm trying out for that team. I want to be labeled with lupus or rheumatoid arthritis or MS. So, you know, that's the goal of mainstream medicine because we got to get that international classification of disease code. <laughs> right. We got to get that code because that's how we get paid. If we have a, you know, code that says, oh, uh, inflammatory polyarthropathy. What does that mean? I don't know what that means. And so, I, and I don't know, like, if we can really get full reimbursement for that. So we're going for that code. And once we get that code that says you've got rheumatoid arthritis, you qualify for the drug, you qualify for, re for insurance reimbursement. But then you find out now you have an identity that says you have this disease and you will have it the rest of your life. And that's the part where I take issue with because it's simply not true. Yep. It's simply I have seen that, quote, march towards erosion and destruction, which is what all the textbooks say. You have rheumatoid arthritis. Your joints are going to erode. And the best thing we can do is slow that down with the most powerful drugs we can. Well, it's simply not true. Again, if you've got that person with the immune system that's ready to blow, and they get the exposure to the virus, right? Or they get some intestinal infection, uh, or maybe they're in a scenario where they have to breathe wildfire smoke for a couple of weeks, and that can set off a bad reaction. That person's going to be harder to get off the wheel. Right. 
But for most people, most of the time, if you catch these conditions early enough in that gestation period, which can really be decades, where the antibodies start going up, where there's evidence of oxidative stress, if you can get them early enough, there's a good chance you can ward it off. Right. And I want to hear people to hear that loud and clear, physicians and lay public listening. This is the, the reality of what medicine is divergent in. Allopathic old school medicine still truly believes that if you have an autoantibody, it's just a matter of time till you develop disease. Like Dr. Roundtree is stating, you have antithyroid antibodies a couple of years before you actually have thyroid symptoms. Oh, we'll just see you back when you have symptoms. Instead of trying to understand why have you developed tissue destruction that's allowing your immune system to react. And that's where we need to focus as providers and as, as, as humans, right. And, and stating that reality, let's go upstream and find the reasons as to the why, to your point, why do you have anti-CCP? Well, now we understand that reality. What are these things? And so that's a great segue point, Bob. So we have this global picture now of systems biology. We have this global picture of this way. There's many ways to cause a immune solvency or an immune surveillance defect that's allowing the system to overreact. What is the 2023 Bob Roundtree view of how do we set ourselves up for success, each person individually, which is the same as for a patient? Clearly, if somebody's lost their entire pancreas to insulin, uh, I mean, to uh, islet cell antibodies, that's too late. You need your insulin. But if we catch somebody early enough to prevent this march, to prevent that disease from worsening, What's your sort of global picture of what you would tell people to do? Well, I would start with something I heard the famous naturopath Bernard Jensen tell me when I was in medical school 40 years ago, heal the gut, right? Something that's so simple and so basic that you think that can't be it, right? And I think we've gotten a lot better at figuring out exactly what that means, Uh, I I actually worked my way uh, through college in a micro lab at at UNC Greensboro, working in the lab, plating cultures all day, every day. And, you know, you basically swab a throat and put it on a blood auger plate. And then you'd put down little discs to see what the bacteria was sensitive to. Same thing with a a bladder, uh, a, a urinary culture. Um, That's what we had. Then we developed the ability to do DNA sequencing. And in in the early days, I wouldn't say it was all that helpful. It was more mind boggling because we, we said, oh, there's a lot more in the gut than we realized. So suddenly we started seeing all these associations between what's going on in the gut microbiome right? And and various health conditions. But we were looking, you know, on a, on a very crude level, what's called, you know, the phylum level, right? The bacteroides and bacteroides, formicutes, ratio, some of these other kind of really big picture. We weren't drilling down and looking at specific bacteria. Well, that kind of testing has really evolved now to what's called metagenomics. Um, as you know, with metagenomics, we can basically measure everything in the person's gut. And one of the first things we find is something like 40% of the things we're finding in there, we don't have names for. Yeah. So there's a, there's a lot of uncharacterized bacteria, um, you know, viruses, all kinds of things, fungi. We don't know what they are, but the ones that we, we do uh, have the ability to identify are starting to fall into certain patterns. 
And one of those common patterns is a scenario where there's a lot of what we would call pro-inflammatory bacteria, not the kind of bacteria that you would say, oh, you immediately got to get rid of them, right? They're not the kind that would cause an infection. Uh, Ruminococcus navis, for example. Uh, it's not one that you would say, you need to be on an antibiotic. In fact, that's the opposite of what you'd want to do. But we would say, if you've got an overgrowth of Ruminococcus navis, that's a problem, right? So now we're getting the ability to start really fine-tuning our analyses of the gut microbiome and and begin to pick out things that we need to really identify and go after. So the other thing we found is it's not just the bad guys that are overgrowing, but it's the good guys that are missing. And one in particular that seems important is Ackermansia mucinophila. Another one is Faecalibacterium prasnitzii. These are bacteria that I never heard of when I was in school and plating right. cultures, right? Because you couldn't grow them, right? They're anaerobic bacteria that, you know, you could spend the whole day plating them out. They would never grow. But we can look at their DNA sequencing and say, oh, I, I know what this is. And, hey, you don't have any. <laughs> you need them. Another one that there's a lot of debate about is something called archaea and the latest theories about evolution or that we actually evolved from archaea, right? Not just from bacteria, but archaea and bacteria kind of teamed up together. Archaea are like bacteria, but they have entirely different genes and entirely different metabolic uh, strategies for feeding off the outside world. So the newer studies are saying, well, some people don't have archaea and that could actually be a problem. So maybe too much is a problem. Maybe not enough is a problem. Goldie, it's the Goldilocks remedy. Right. And a lot of what's, so this is a long way of saying a lot of what's evolving from this is the realization that we don't get enough of certain kinds of fibers in our diet. So we've kind of evolved from the early days of microbiome testing where we'd go, oh, look, you've got this bad guy. You've got this, you've got a parasite, right? You've got helicobacter. So, you know, helicobacter must be bad and we should always treat it all the time to, gee, helicobacter is actually protective in certain scenarios. Right. You know? Blastocystis hominis, a parasite that's fairly common that may be beneficial in certain scenarios. Right. So we've gone from the early days. We found bad guys. You've got yeast. Let's kill the yeast. That's the end of the story to now realizing we've got to think in terms of the system. What does the whole system look like? And it's allowed us to define this term dysbiosis, which we've used for decades now. Well, but we've never really known what it means. It's kind of like, well, you know it when you see it, but what is it exactly? And now we're getting better at saying, well, dysbiosis is a part of this metabolic endotoxemia scenario. And we're getting pretty good at being able to fine tune that is to say, well, there's certain kinds of fibers like resistant starches that are proving to be really beneficial and they're missing in our diets. Right. Right. Yep. So more and more companies now are starting to come out with these uh, fine-tuned prebiotic fiber supplements. Uh, and I use them in patients all the time, usually based on a gut microbiome analysis. 
especially yeah. in somebody with the beginnings of the autoimmune march. So that's different than in the old days. Find the bad guy, get rid of the bad guy, and maybe put you on a probiotic. Well, I still use probiotics, but they're not at the top of my list. I actually have been using more of the Acromanzia mucinophila, which is, you know, something that's just become available about a year and a half ago, I think. The company right. found a way to stabilize it. Right. Um, what what the heck? Why would that be any good? Because it is one of the main bacteria that produces butyrate. And butyrate is one of the critical nutrients that gut cells need to stay healthy and to prevent leaky gut and it also has anti-inflammatory effects and it's also beneficial for the brain so uh acromanzia is one that you want to go for right, and i right. see that i see low acromanzia in people with autoimmune diseases all the time very common so you you supplement with the acromanzia but then you also give the prebiotics to feed the acromanzia any use in postbiotics yet uh postbiotics like glutamine you mean or no like some of the metabolites like uh um uh, a couple of different products out there right now one i'm thinking of is uh thanabiotic um where they're actually taking the metabolites from somebody who is is excreted healthy stool and basically got rid of the bacteria rid of all the other stuff but just kept the met metabolites that are left over yeah i it's it's interesting because that term is uh, you know i've been using these things but i I haven't been using the term. Right? Okay. About that. Um, I have been, I, I guess you would consider under that uh, title, you know, just using butyrate, like mm -hmm. butyrate. So I've used the, the butyrate products for years, mostly people with inflammatory bowel disease, which I know, again, is something that's increasing in kids. I've used that. Thenobiotic is a really interesting product. Uh, I've met with the people that started the company, uh, had a nice dialogue with them, and I've given it to several patients, generally with beneficial results. Yeah, uh, you know, have a a young girl with Crohn's disease. I've given it to who's had a really good result with it. So yeah, I'm. Uh, if, you know, now that you define what that is, yeah. I am using uh, butyrate. So yeah, you know, the prebiotics is coming at it from one end, and postbiotic from literally from the other end. I I used to give butyrate enemas, but that's kind of an ordeal <laughs> it smelled <laughs> a harder thing to get a patient to buy into it's harder I to get people to buy into but in the old days that's all we had yeah um and th there was also this product used for cancer years ago called uh tributyrate which uh i can't remember the guy's name stanley something he called them anti-neoplastons hmm. and it was interesting because it probably did have some anti-cancer properties i don't know where the research is with that but uh, you know, it was an interesting idea that I think has evolved since. Yeah. So I'm hearing you say loud and clear gut, most important in kids, especially in my patient population, if they don't change the diet, yep. they will revert back to trouble in no time. And so I think that's sort of critical. You obviously believe that as well. What, what is your prescription for dietary plan? Anti-inflammatory? Do you have a specific one, an autoimmune diet? Um, you know, I have used, I say the autoimmune, you know, AID diet. Um, it's kind of a kitchen sink diet. Yeah. Right. Let's just throw in everything that could possibly be a problem, right? Nightshades, lectins, <laughs> uh, 
I gotta say, I, I you know, I followed the lectin hypothesis for a long time. I had a chance to meet Lauren Cordain, who was one of the original proponents of it. Uh, he's uh, actually here in Colorado at Colorado State. So I've, I've heard him lecture, written, you know, read his papers when he, he wrote the book, was it the paleo prescription or something like oh, that? Yeah. So his yeah. whole theory is, oh, it's lectins that cause rheumatoid arthritis. And if you just take the lectins out, they're not a problem. And now you have Dr. Gundry who's yeah. saying the same thing. But, you know, man, I think uh, I think you can take that stuff to an extreme. Mm-hmm. Oh, here's a plant that you eat all the time, which you thought was healthy. But let me tell you, it's not healthy. You know, you shouldn't be eating almonds or blueberries or spinach or, you know, the whole plant paradox. I don't buy it. Right. I just uh, I don't find the literature that compelling. So here's where I start, kind of the big picture, is the junk food is the big problem, right? So there's different layers of it. If you can just get the kids or the adults off the junk food, the highly processed food, that's a big start. Yep. Right? So that's number one. And then number two, which is kind of part of that, is cutting back on any kind of refined carbs. So, you know, zero in on that. You know, that's 75% of your problem right there. And that's exactly what we do in pediatrics. Get rid of the, for me, gluten and dairy is a big one just because that's a major player in all these processed foods. But it's it's essentially get rid of the refined carbohydrates, refined sugars, go back to a whole foods diet, very much yep. like uh, Michael Pollan states, you know, limited ingredients, mostly foods, mostly plants, get simple. And then invariably, I think you're right. I don't think any restrictive diet makes any sense at that point. With the exception, again, I've just seen too many success stories with getting rid of gluten and dairy. Those are the only two foods that I'm like, you know what? These two suckers cause so much trouble. I'm still stuck on them being pulled out in general. But outside of that, whole foods. Yeah, because otherwise I've seen people get orthorexic, right? Mm -hmm. They get so paranoid. You know, they, oh, they read the plant paradox and now I should be afraid because that's the whole message of that book is be afraid that foods that you thought were healthy, be afraid that those foods are harming you. And I just don't think that's that fear is a good attitude. The fear itself creates stress, which is harmful for the immune system. And you have a kid that you're saying, uh, hey, you know, you're 12 years old, your immune system's going crazy. You know, I want you to live off rutabagas and Cornish game hens. That's all that's good for you. I just, I think it creates a mentality. And I've seen kids like this, they, they come in, they don't know what to eat. They're really confused. And I say, gee, you know, most of the value you're going to get is from eliminating these really basic foods from gluten and dairy and junk food, et cetera. And then if you still need to go to another level, we can do an elimination diet. Yep. Right. Sure. And so that's where I use the, the autoimmune diet or the autoimmune paleo diet or, you know, some of these other diets that are related to that. It's an elimination diet. Yeah. Go off these foods for three or four weeks. And if you really feel better, then we can reintroduce the foods. But don't reintroduce the foods and still feel like you should be worried about them if you're not reacting to them. If you don't feel a reaction within 24 to 48 hours, it's probably not an issue. I agree. So again, I think the lectin issue is overrated as a as a concern. Um, yeah, maybe in some individuals it's a problem. And I'm coming from a place of having lectured on that 
and and said, well, I don't know, maybe there's something to it. We should be thinking about it. But after going through this with many, many patients, I've finally come to the conclusion that it's it's a bit overrated. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would I would agree entirely. And I think one of the things that's sort of fascinating about being in pediatrics with a predominantly Medicaid population, I have had a very difficult time getting testing done. So to look at IgG, IgG4 testing for a while, their Medicaid covered it in North Carolina, but now they don't. And I find now that I don't really need it because invariably it's three foods. Egg is the only other one I randomly have to yep. take out for headaches and other stuff. But outside of that, it's really just gluten and dairy. I'll, there's not much more to it. So I, I, I agree. Yeah. 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 So, Bob, Bob, I want to be conscious of your time. Um, you know, it's it's pretty clear gut rehab. It's pretty clear where it's starting. We got to get back to the beginning of birth and start really working on maternal health and child health after the gate. Get off antibiotics, get off antacids, fix the diet. You've yep. nailed all these things. We went through toxins. You know, so is there anything else we really didn't touch on on a global scale? I know ends of one, everyone has specifics. We can't really touch the specifics, but is there anything else on a global scale that you recommend, you know, for everyone? I, I you know, the only thing I would throw in is exercise. Um, yeah, I mean, getting more sleep. sleep. Obviously, sleep helps regulate the immune system. So all the lifestyle factors, you know, sleep, exercise. So we talked about diet, sleep, exercise, stress management. These are all part of the functional medicine matrix, yeah. right? Well, you got to get all that stuff kind of in the periphery. Uh, you got to get that under control. And then I would say, you know, at that point, there's more fine tuning. And yeah. that's when seeing a doc like you, somebody that's been trained in functional medicine can do fine tuning because there's a lot of botanicals that can be really helpful. I love using curcumin, I love mm -hmm. using Boswellia. I love using Andrographis. Uh, you know, basic nutrients like quercetin, vitamin C, zinc, uh, omega three fatty acids. I use all that stuff pretty liberally. Yeah. Uh, but if you don't use the right doses and you don't use quality products, it's not going to be as effective, and people are going to be disappointed. So right. I think it's better to do that under the supervision. Right. Of somebody that, that can tweak it a little bit. So the diet stuff, you know, most everybody can do. That's a global recommendation. Most everybody yeah. can do that. Try those things out. And then the next step is just to work with a, a doc or nutritionist, uh, you know, somebody that's that's had a bit of training in this that knows what they're doing. Yeah. To that point, all herbs, you know, to some extent have risk just like all medicines have risk. If you don't take them appropriately, herbs have less risk because they're not as potently toxic because they're not single nutrients in general, you know, berberine, all these other things have their effects, but they're, you know, in the right dose, they're very safe. And to your point, I think it's very important that everyone hear loud and clear. Don't play around with the stuff until you know what you're doing. And so link yourself to somebody who has the ba the bandwidth and the historical knowledge to make better decisions on your case as an N of one. And so, yeah, fabulous. I love it. This has been a an amazing tour through horror toxicus. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, I ask everybody one question, Bob. I'm going to throw one at you just pretty quick. Mine, I'll tell you mine while you have a chance to think. You're going to get I'm going to give you the the privilege of having a golden ticket that you get to take to Congress or to the president and say, Hey, we need one thing changed. And while you're thinking of yours, mine is very simple. I would, I would revolutionize all school food. All, all schools would have to have a kitchen with a chef that provides only whole foods, eliminating the entire antecedent risk factor of junk food. What would you ask for? Uh, I'd love to see uh, medical school changed 
you know, in, in terms of what the basic curriculum is teaching people to shift the whole curriculum over to, to require courses in nutrition, preventive medicine, culinary medicine. It's happening in scattered places, but yeah. I'd like to see a big government incentive so that medical students from day one start without such a heavy focus on pathology. You've got to know pathology. There's no question. I'm I'm thrilled that I learned it. It's still helpful today. But you got to start by emphasizing what wellness means. What does health look like? And how do you reinforce that in your patients? And that's got to be inculcated from day one in medical school. And it's only going to happen if there's grants to programs to have professors that are trained in lifestyle medicine that can be teaching this from the very beginning. Yeah. All things in life need balance. And when 16 hours of nutrition training at Emory was balanced against my 2000 hours of pharmacology training, there's something out of balance. And so you're yeah. right. Everybody knows it. It's sort of sad that everybody knows it, yet nothing's changing to the degree that we need it to be. But I'd give you that golden ticket in a heartbeat. I wish you, that would come to pass sooner than later. But in the absence of that, we have the pleasure of learning from people like you who've done the deep dive, the digging, the the loving of the human to send this information out into the cybersphere. I still remember with all the fond memories the first day I heard you speaking up there, and I look forward to all the many times I will hear you speak in the future. And for the time you're offering everybody right now, I gratefully appreciate you, Bob. My pleasure. Thanks. It's been fun. All right. You get the final word. Uh you know, it can be uh, an overwhelming time. People think about environmental toxins and all the diseases you could get, et cetera. But I do think there's reason to be positive because we're uncovering so much useful information about how to fine tune lifestyle. So, yeah. you know, the more we can tell people, well, this is what you need. You know, this is how much sleep you need. This is how much exercise you need. These are how many blueberries you need to eat every day. Amen. Right? Amen. So, uh, you know, that's that's what I would tell people going forward is uh, there's no need to be discouraged. You know, focus on the positive. You heard it here, folks. Bob Roundtree. Excellent. Thank you, sir. You betcha. Pleasure. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. I truly find Dr. Roundtree to be one of my favorite teachers in the past decade. Uh, he, his exuberance, his joyful way of seeing medicine and science is to me just infectious. And I absolutely always love spending time with him when he is teaching about anything in human health and medicine. And so when we think about this entire conversation, we're sort of looking at it from the perspective of what does it take to think about human autoimmunity from a upstream reasoning as to why we're here, how to unwind it possibly, if it's possible, in those conditions that we can figure out the triggers, and therefore return the autoimmune state to a state of tolerance. And when we speak of tolerance, that's sort of a key piece, right? So if you look at just the other way the body attacks something, we could think of allergy and asthma. And you've heard in this podcast before, or at least in some of the newsletter audio casts about the Stein study in the New England Journal of Medicine from uh, about 10 years ago, where they looked at the Amish enclave versus the Hutterite enclave of humans that dwell in the United States that have this genocentric population, but have a disparate outcome in their risk of developing asthma and allergies. And it was 
truly related to their exposure to bacterial endotoxin in their environment. The Amish communities had higher loads of bacterial endotoxin or bacterial cell wall debris in their homes as measured and, as, and then as tested in animals that were prone to developing diseases of the atopic type or the allergic type versus the Hooterite communities that didn't have as much. And so when they went and tracked this out over time, it was very clear that the exposure to microbes in the early ages of life predisposed the child to developing tolerance to the natural environment and therefore not developing allergies and dysfunction. And this reality, I think, plays out the same in autoimmunity. And to me, it's pretty clear that the keys to all of this are developing natural tolerance to the environment. And how are we subterfuging or submarining that ability to develop tolerance? Well, many of those things as stated in this conversation are related to the development of a natural microbiome, the avoidance of chemicals, the development of normal metabolism through healthy dietary in interventions, breastfeeding, avoidance of uh, antibiotics, avoidance of antacids, and on and on and on. Essentially living a traditional agrarian life that was historically the way humans existed for millennia. The, act the actions of inducing tolerance are very complicated, but they're related to after birth, you have this gland called the thymus. And the thymus has T-cells, which are these very specific immune cells that learn right from wrong. From a protein structure perspective, small fragments of proteins are presented to the T-cells by dendritic cells and other macrophages, which are these very professional uh, cells that go and engulf organisms that they don't like or don't think should be there, present part of the tissue, these protein fragments, to the immune system via these T-cells that we learn, is this a self-tissue, your nuclear protein? Is this a uh, piece of a food type? Is this a pathogen? And the body is supposed to, through all of the different mechanisms of the immune system, develop a way to develop a knowledge base of right from wrong. And we call this tolerance. The thymus has these very specific abilities to recognize right from wrong. And the healthy tissue can induce T-cell tolerance in two ways. First, it can simply carry out its normal function of expressing on its cell surface molecules that are related to the, the organism. And this would be needed to be co-stimulated in order to become active. And if it's not co-stimulated by a, another cell, that T-cell would then be turned into a deleted or what we call non-clonally expanded cell and it sort of disappears and then you don't develop a reaction against whatever the tissue that was presented that was quote-unquote our tissue. And, and that's sort of super, super important. The other way this can happen is through the expression of co-inhibitory signals certain proteins or cytokines that are released and they have these fancy names like B7H3 or PDL1 that suppress these destructive responses and then again induce tolerance. And has been proven in multiple studies, the more exposure we have to natural organisms like bacteria, viruses, and parasites, the more immune healthy tuning we have so that we recognize the foreign invaders more than we recognize our self-tissue. And Clearly, what's happened in society over the past many years is that we are no longer 
you know, looking at ourselves naturally because we're not having as much exposure to foreign pathogens. And this is very clear when we look at the world of COVID. Two plus years of hyper cleanliness, avoidance of each other, avoidance of disease, all of these things. What did that do to our kids? We're going to find out. Did that set us up for less tolerance, more problems? You know, and then we had this secondary period from year two on in COVID where kids got sick all the time because their immune system was basically not worked at all. They had no antibodies floating around because antibodies typically disappear over time if they're not recurrently stimulated. They had T cell and B cell memory so they could remember infections if they had seen them before, but they had no circulating antibodies to deal with it quickly. So people got sick a lot. And that ushered in an era of back-to-back infections, which led to a problem of overuse of antibiotics in order to deal with these situations. So that was problematical in of itself. So we have a lot of variables that came into play post-COVID that may set us up for more risk of self-tissue antigen presentation, which leads to autoimmunity. And again, we don't have time to get into other reasons why you could be polarized towards an exposure risk of autoimmune as you age. But one thing's very clear. If you are sending danger signals to the immune system, it will start to respond. So the more inflammation you have, the worse your risk. What drives inflammation? We've talked about that a thousand times. Excessive sugar exposure excessive glucose through starch exposure, so your refined carbohydrates, excessive excessive bad fats exposure, right? Excessive stress. This could be through not sleeping enough. This could be through mental stress. This could be physical stress, right? Overexercising can do this. This could be through myriad different ways, low vitamin D, right? This is a big problem, not enough sun exposure, These are all ways that lead to dysfunctions in the immune system. T regulator cells are a part of the T cell system that are involved in dampening immune responses. And the three major precursors to improving the function of the gene that turns them on called FOXP3 is vitamin A, vitamin D, and good microbes in your gut, which are fed by fiber. So people who are not consuming enough fiber, check, huge problem in society now. People not getting enough vitamin A, check, huge problem in society now. And people not getting enough vitamin D, check, a huge problem in society now. So those three things alone are driving problems. Again, not to mention all the other things I've just stated. It's amazing anyone is normal in this day and age. So The goal of all of this stuff, as stated, is to find a way to prevent these things from happening in the first place. That, to me, is the ideal situation. If you do develop autoantibodies, then we need to specifically talk about finding a provider who knows what to do to try and unwind whatever your inflammatory reasons are for being who you are in this state and time. As a pediatrician, I'd like to look at this much more upstream. How do we prevent kids from doing this? I think as a society, we're failing. I think even as a practice, Our group is failing because we are not convincing folks enough to change the dietary stresses that are causing this, to change the exposures to toxins, to change the stresses of mental and physical. We're not doing enough to help kids be the best versions of themselves because our society is geared towards rapid satisfaction through highly processed foods, highly stimulating environments, highly stressful environments with lots of video gaming, lots of, I mean, just on and on and on and on and on. Non-natural, truly a 50-year experiment that's going sideways. So for me, we need to go back to what Mother Nature, what God, what history has given us over a millennia. And again, we've talked about this ad nauseum, but it's simple. Sleep more, eat minimally processed highly functional foods, mostly plants, especially green leafy and highly colored plants like red peppers, carrots, 
all of these highly polyphenol loaded plant products that help us deal with oxidative stress and deal with all the toxin burdens of society, which then again leads to reducing our toxin exposure and, and on and on. And these are the things we need to do from the get-go with children. And if we as a group are able to educate folks, and Dr. Roundtree is doing his job to educate people about this, and I'm trying to share his brilliant knowledge. And again, I've learned tremendously from this man, and I am grateful for his efforts over the decades that he has compiled this information to share it so I can now share his knowledge and my knowledge to you all. So, Again, the root cause of everything is tolerance break. As Dr. Roundtree said, danger signals are the big deal, so inflammation drives that. We know what drives most inflammation in the United States right now. It is toxin exposure. It is poor quality diets. It is stress on the body, whether it is mental, physical, emotional, all of the above, right? Not enough sleep, on and on and on and on. So I'm going to leave it at that. There's a lot more I'd like to say. The only other caveats I will add uh, Dr. Roundtree rep, uh, re- referred to an article in Nature is Nature Reviews Rheumatology, September 2022 uh, by Axel Fink, F-I-N-C-K-H, Global Epidemiology of Rheumatoid Arthritis, if you want to pull that up. And then The Microbe of Untacted MR Indians was an article on scientific ad- science advances, excuse me, science advances. And that was published on April 17th of 2015, and that is the article looking at the Yanomami people in um, in Venezuela. So those are two really excellent articles. I highly encourage you to pull them and look at them. And so, you know, we're going to leave it here. This was a long one, but superbly necessary in helping us all understand what is the best way for us to start moving forward and learning how to be the best versions of ourselves for our kids so that they can have less autoimmunity, less allergic disease, and less struggle in life. As always, hug those kids. Again, grateful to Dr. Roundtree for being who he is. And grateful to all of you for listening and spreading the news of promoting preventative-based health. So with that, I'll leave you. Have a great day. And again, I'll say it again. I'll say it a hundred times, maybe a thousand times before I die. Hug those kids. The information provided in this podcast is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and or treatment provided by your physician or other healthcare professional and is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue and does not constitute the formation of a provider-patient relationship. Have a great day.